0: Welcome to the first episode of the Inhoc Signo podcast. Inhoc Signo is a content platform publisher and aggregator for Christian content on the internet. Our primary purpose is education of Christians, by Christians, and for the purpose of Christianity. I am Justinian. And I'm Raven. And we will be the host of this podcast today where we're, we're going to be talking about ecumenism, but first some personal introductions. So uh as I said i'm raven i'm um, twenty five and i'm a Catholic
1: I've been a Catholic my whole life, uh, so I've never gone through any kind of conversion experience uh, but I do believe very f- uh fully in the Catholic faith, and I love uh sharing it
0: with other people I am Justinian, I am basically the complete opposite in that I have moved across different branches of Christianity, Protestantism, through orthodoxy, and now Catholicism over my thirty years of life, including uh, atheism in my young adult years. So, for our first podcast episode,
1: uh, we want to tackle a very important subject uh, in terms of online Christian education, and that would be the subject of ecumenism. We want to talk about ecumenism because it's part of our mission and our you know being to educate others on Christianity and Christians educating each other is a big part of what ecumenism is and. Uh, we want to be clear about it because uh, the word itself is confusing and the process of ecumenism can also
0: cause conflict and confusion among Christians. And we want to try to clear some of that up. Ecumenism comes from a ancient Greek word ecumen, which means the world, but not the world as in the planet earth, but the world as in the universe as the speaker conceives of it. And so in the ancient world, that would have been essentially the mediterranean with some outlying territories and in the modern world it really means the whole universe or the universe as christians perceive of it the ism makes it a movement so it's a movement of a type of universalism but even an english universalism would generate conflict and you know possibly some cringe and knee-jerking across different christian branches The biggest sources of conflict on the meaning of this word would be between the Catholic and the Orthodox. To explain how each of them feel, we're going to go through parts of the Orthodox Church's 1983 anathema on ecumenism. And uh, we're also going to look
1: at the Catholic Church's decree on ecumenism called Unitatis Red
0: So the Catholic Church uses a lot of positive theology, which is an attempt to positively define what something is rather than what it is not. And it does the same thing when it defines ecumenism.
1: So uh, the Catholic Church defines ecumenism uh, in its decree on ecumenism from the Second Vatican Council, uh, really in, in as the collection of four things. These four things are going to be to one, make every effort to avoid misrepresentations of the condition or beliefs of separated brethren, two, to engage in dialogue between competent experts from different churches to bring about greater clarity of the traditions and their distinctive features, Uh, three, to gain appreciation for the teaching and religious life of the individual church communities, and four, to engage in cooperation with each other for the good of humanity, which
0: uh, where possible will also include common prayer. And the Orthodox Church, in contrast, uses a lot of negative theology, which seeks to explain what God is not rather than what he is, uh, believing that you cannot accurately describe what God is because he is essentially infinite. And it also does the same thing in how it defines ecumenism. So what we have here is the Russian Orthodox Church outside of Russia's Anathema Against Ecumenism, which was issued in 1983. And there are a lot of Orthodox people, especially online, who seem to believe that this is an anathema of what Unitatis Red Gratio describes, which it most certainly isn't. And we know that because the anathema explains exactly what it is anathematizing or saying to exclude and do away with it reads, those who attack the Church of Christ by teaching that the Church is divided into so-called branches, or that the Church does not exist visibly but will be formed in the future when all branches or even religions are united into one body, or who do not distinguish the priesthood or the mysteries or sacraments of the Church from those of the heretics, or that say that baptism in the Eucharist of heretics is effectual for salvation, or who knowingly have communion with these aforementioned heretics, or who advocate, disseminate, or defend their heresy under the pretext of brotherly love, should be anathematized.
1: Right, so uh, the, the Orthodox Church's uh, decree that, that we just heard from uh, basically describes the bad aspects of ecumenism, so where, where the concept of ecumenism can go wrong. And this really takes three different forms uh, that most Christians are probably familiar with, uh, at least one or two of these. Uh, so the first form of bad ecumenism would be the idea that the differences don't really matter. Uh, this this is basically the the, the concept. You've, I'm sure you've heard this before. Where oh, all Christians are going to the same place, and it really doesn't matter what you believe. Everybody can you know sort of choose which church fits their aesthetic appeal the best, and uh, it you know it the the actual doctrines are not really that relevant. Uh, this the second negative aspect of ecumenism is. Uh, something we might call non-denominationalism. Uh, so th- this is the idea that that different denominations are actually just not relevant, and that we should just have intercommunion despite teaching different things and believing different things about God and about Christ. Uh, so that's another bad way to look at ecumenism. And the Orthodox Church is very clear that that's undesirable, and the Catholic Church is against it as well. And then the last type of bad ecumenism that we see is something we might call polemics. So uh, this is when people go out of their way to misrepresent what other people believe, to make their beliefs seem more outlandish or more ridiculous than they actually are. And nobody really learns anything when that happens. And, it, and it's not helpful. And it, it certainly doesn't foster a, an educational or brotherly atmosphere. So those are, that's
0: sort of what bad ecumenism can look like. Good ecumenism. We'll talk about that first. And this is what we strive to do here. It's part of our purpose, and it has a very good purpose. And that is unity and peace among Christians and really trying to fulfill Christ's intent. And this is something that we've talked about many times uh, on our own is, did Christ expect people to have to get a master's in theology to identify the right church? It's almost certain that he didn't and so it's unlikely that he expects every individual christian to perfectly identify you know these high theology concepts and to the extent that there are people who are able to do those things and share those ideas across traditions they should be able to clearly understand each other
1: right and we know from scripture and and from the tradition itself that christ never intended for there to be a bunch of different churches Right, He he prays, uh, even in in his earthly ministry, he prays that that we as Christians would all be one as he and the Father are one. And so, uh, you know, there's also plenty of imagery in scripture of Christ as the shepherd who gathers all of the lambs into one flock. So we're we're not uh, supposed to be content with this, the current state of things where Christians are separated by Uh, all kinds of administrative and theological barriers so uh, in aiming for good ecumenism we're we're trying to fulfill what what we as christians should see
0: as as christ's intent for the church which is ultimately for the church to be united so i think we can start with explaining what a separated brother or separated brethren is and this calls to mind to me this part of the gospels i forget exactly which one where The apostles and the 70 are sent out into villages to do Christ's work, and they come back and they say, Lord, we encountered someone who was casting out demons in your name, but he was not one of us. Christ says to hinder him not. This man, I think, is the first separated brother. He is out doing Christ's work, but still not being united to the rest of the body.
1: Right. So uh, one way traditionally that Christians have defined separation Uh, Most of us know this intuitively, there's Catholics, there's Orthodox, there's Protestants of different denominations, Uh, but the the traditional way of of describing this separation was with communion. Somebody was separated if they were not able to partake of communion in the church, and uh, this is where the phrase excommunication comes from, and this is particularly relevant in the Catholic and Orthodox churches, which still maintain this tradition, where if you are excommunicated, you're by definition outside the church, and you might need to go to confession or renounce a heresy or some other, uh, you know, ameliorative action in order to come back into communion. In, In this context, we could see with, at least with respect to the Catholic and Orthodox churches, that communion defines a separated brother or not.
0: In newer churches, it can be a bit more difficult because... Say the Anglican communion is a a huge communion across the world, uh, which includes, of course, the Anglican church, but also Episcopalians and I think some other small churches. I couldn't say exactly who that these different churches and sub churches can have pretty wildly different beliefs. Uh, you, You can ask any Anglican if they're high church or low church or somewhere in between there's a lot of really varying ideas within there but they're all part of the same communion on the other end of that you can end up with types of non-denominational churches in the sense of they don't ascribe themselves to a specific denomination or title that communion to them is something they do once a quarter out of a plastic cup and you know anyone who walks in is welcome to partake so it's it's a bit harder to define what communion is in newer traditions but it gives us a good standard for what a separated brother would be. So it's, it's also important for us to define what a separated
1: brother is not, uh, especially in the context of a discussion about ecumenism. We're not talking about ancient heresies. Uh, we're, not, we're not talking about people who deny the divinity of Christ or who uh, believe in Gnosticism or some, some other ancient heretical movement. Uh, we're talking specifically about Christians who would assent to the Nicene Creed and who believe in the Trinity, the divinity of Jesus, these you know, these foundational beliefs about Jesus. We're also not talking about other faiths. So we're not talking about Jews or Muslims or Buddhists or atheists.
0: We're talking specifically about discussions between Christians. And that doesn't mean that we can't seek to understand these people and try to you know, have a dialogue with them to further peace or even try to convert them. But that's not what's contained within the word and movement of ecumenism. So why should we bother with good ecumenism? Well, the Vatican II Declaration on ecumenism gives us some pretty good reasons.
1: So uh, one of the most important reasons to engage in ecumenism would be to bring greater clarity to traditions. So, uh, it's easy to be mistrustful of other Christians if you don't understand what they truly believe. And there are many examples of this. Uh, to, to give a more common one, there are, are many Protestants who I've encountered who think that Catholics worship Mary, right? That we conceive of Mary as if she's also divine in some sense. This isn't what Catholics believe. And if we're engaged in a good faith ecumenism, it can be a very simple conversation to have where the Catholic involved can explain, well, no, that's not actually what we believe about Mary. And maybe the Protestant will agree with the Catholic positions about Mary, or maybe he will not, but at the very
0: least, he won't have that, that misconception that, that leads to division. This has been really shown in our work so far, and I have learned a ton about other traditions that, you know, I didn't understand anything about just through our Discord server so far i've learned a lot about lutherans uh, presbyterians that they've got their own subdivisions and within those they can have wildly different beliefs and so you can't ascribe to one group of them the same beliefs as the rest there's a lot of nuance and particularity to a lot of the beliefs that we believe they hold even something as simple sounding as sola scriptura you can find how different versions of Protestantism have wildly different beliefs of what Sola Scriptura means. And so if you're going to, you know, whether it's for your own education or because you want to, you know, argue with them and prove you're right one way or another, you're going to want to be speaking the same language and know exactly what they actually believe.
1: Right. And, and often what you'll find, and this isn't always true, but sometimes what you'll find is that the beliefs that we have are relatively similar We just use different language to describe them. And so this isn't obviously there are still important differences, as we've discussed. But there are very many instances where Protestants and Catholics in particular, uh, because the traditions have been so closely related for most of Christian history, where they speak of the same concepts, but they use different language and get tied up in defending the, the
0: language rather than the concept itself this is something you can see all the way back in the ancient days with the oriental orthodox churches the uh, ethiopian tawahedos the syriac orthodox the coptic orthodox that a lot of them now are saying that their opposition to the council of chalcedon was completely linguistic and especially back in those days like language was hard you're talking communication that mostly would have taken the form of letters on messengers that would have taken months across different languages needing to be translated linguistic conflicts are more serious than they sound. You can end up completely talking past each other.
1: And so uh, a second reason for engaging in ecumenism that is really helpful is to gain an appreciation for the teaching and religious life of both communities. So what you'll often find is that there are aspects of other Christian traditions that are not at all contrary to your tradition's beliefs. But that still might be very beneficial for you to engage in. It might help your faith in some way. So, uh, for instance, I know of several Protestants who have taken up the practice of doing the sign of the cross. Uh, there's nothing in Protestant theology, or at least not in their Protestant theology, that would preclude them from doing that, even though it's seen as a mostly Catholic or Orthodox thing to do. Uh, and it simply helps them remember to pray and centers their prayer life. So uh, that's one example. Uh, Another example would be the Protestant emphasis on Scripture. So we, we've seen since the Reformation, there's been a great deal of uh, Scripture scholarship, especially dealing with the ancient uh, Greek and Hebrew that the Scriptures were written in. Uh, and that's largely come about as a result of Protestant emphasis on the Scriptures. That's a very good thing that's, that's really helped all of Christendom.
0: Another example would be, what orthodoxy has given the world, uh, and that you know, Catholicism and their ecumenical efforts has have always constantly praised is their extremely ancient traditions, their strong attachments to patristics. I mean, the Catholic Church has always had a study of patristics, but I'm under the impression that it has exploded since the fall of uh, the Soviet Union and Ottoman Empire, particularly because of reestablishing communication with the Orthodox churches iconography is another one that study and appreciation of iconography has resurfaced in the West as a result of that as well. Across all these different far-ranging ages of Christianity, whether it's relatively new in the far West or ancient all the way back to the beginning in the Far East, there is something that we have all been able to benefit and exchange from one another. And The Orthodox Church, the Roman Catholic Church, and even some Protestant churches attempt to use the title Catholic to describe themselves. And one of the reasons they do that is that it means universal, similar to ecumenical. It's not meant to mean that they are universal in that they are the church over the whole universe. It is universal in that they are the church that contains the whole universe of Christianity, all of its different versions and different faiths. And any church who is going to claim that needs to... Take in everything that is good. Find truth where it lies.
1: Right. In the Catholic Church, uh, we have a, a bit of a tongue in cheek phrase uh, that is actually quite true, which is if it's true, it's Catholic. So uh, we don't want to be rejecting things as Catholics in particular from other traditions if they're true, if they're not contradictory to our theology and our, the doctrines of the church. Then we should be taking in everything that is good about other Christian
0: traditions it makes the, the whole church richer as a result. We have joked in the past, that it, we say it's a joke, but really it's quite true, is that Catholicism needs more orthodoxy and orthodoxy needs more Catholicism. And it's not only in that the churches need each other as we could call them two lungs of the same church, or but that Catholicism in its wide range of the world can end up taking on too many ideas at once and not really nailing down the The truth and the orthodoxy uh quickly enough whereas orthodoxy is very slow to adapt and so it hasn't really absorbed new cultures and new ideas in a very long time and those are things that they can clearly benefit from one another the last reason why why we should engage
1: in ecumenism would be to engage in cooperation for the common good of humanity uh, this also would include common prayer, but uh, that's, you know, kind of a separate case. So in terms of cooperation for the common good, we're talking about setting up hospitals, running charities, uh, doing the kinds of things that Christians are called to do to
0: serve the world around us. Sharing a prayer vigil and marching together uh, at March for Life is a great example. Right. Uh, Christians actually all over the world have been
1: involved in in working together to end abortion and uh, we're we're just now starting to see some good fruits of that, so th- that's very encouraging. Uh, but and that's another example that uh, you know these pregnancy centers that that Christians have set up to help women, pregnant women in crisis situations, or even not in crisis situations. Those are things that don't have to be denominational. They can just be Christians working together to do something really good for the world. You know, engaging in ecumenism allows us to do that in a way that is uh, that is respectful of the differences between
0: the traditions without just ignoring that they exist at all do you recall the details of there's this religious freedom case recently of i believe it was the thomas more society representing a was it an orthodox teacher or orthodox priest and something that that's i can't remember the details of that case right now but that's another example of you know working together for the common good of christianity yeah, there,
1: there are lots of uh, Christian law firms that work for religious liberty. And generally what we find with those law firms is that they work for the, the good not only of other Christians, but also for other religious people who aren't Christian. Uh, so, you know, when we work together as Christians, we can end up having effects on the broader culture that are, that are really positive.
0: We could, we could call this a, a fourth reason, but really this is encompassed in all the other of reasons to engage in good ecumenism is you know peace religious wars it's a bit of a myth how common they are but it is something that can be extremely violent and so it's a good thing that christians should not be at war with one another christians should avoid war as much as they can but certainly shouldn't be at war with one another especially non-violent you know just moral holy wars when there's common enemies and evils in the world to be combating
1: and, and so the, the last part of this that I, I said was kind of a separate issue is common prayer. We have to be careful about common prayer in some ways, because uh, in order to engage in ecumenism properly, we have to make sure that we're being respectful of the differences between the faiths and also adhering to our church's own uh, doctrines and dogmas. Some churches have a, very, a, a much more restrictive stance on prayer with people that they consider to be heretics. If you're a member of a church like that, then I would encourage you to respect your church's authority and not engage in prayer that that your church prohibits. Other churches like the Catholic church, for instance, will permit it in certain circumstances, but not in others. So as a Catholic, uh, I would not go to a Protestant service and receive communion because that kind of common prayer would be something that made me appear to believe things that I don't believe. At the same time, I would have no trouble saying grace before a meal with some Protestants. Uh, we want to engage in common prayer wherever that's possible, but we have to keep in mind that, that some kinds of prayer are different from others, and uh, we want to make sure that we're being consistent with our own beliefs and not straying too far into the non-denominational idea that it doesn't matter which church you go to on Sunday, and,
0: you know, just everything's the same. So we'll touch on one, we can call it a negative reason to engage in good ecumenism. And this isn't to necessarily say that it's bad. It's just a negative definition, like negative theology. If you don't find all these other reasons convincing to, you know, try to properly understand other traditions, then one that might motivate you, that we briefly touched on before, is better convincing other people. You're going to have a really hard time convincing someone that you have the right of something if you can't even accurately explain what they believe. We call that a straw man, and I think everybody hates being made into a straw man. What you'll find is that if you take time to actually listen to what,
1: where somebody's coming from, and this is even true beyond ecumenism if you're, if you're talking to an atheist or a Jew or a Muslim, if you try to understand exactly what they think, you're going to be able to better respond to that person individually or that tradition as a whole than if you just assume what they think and start attacking what you think they believe. It never really works well if you do that. And uh, it can be far more productive, not only in terms of winning an argument, but also in terms of building a relationship if you really try to understand where somebody's coming from first and, and then, you know, engage them where they're at and figure out how to argue with the positions that they actually hold. The last reason we could tack on to this for engaging in ecumenism is that it will also help you to understand your own tradition better. True. Uh, There have been many times where I've been talking with a Lutheran or an Orthodox person about some Catholic dogma, and in the course of the conversation— uh, I've realized I don't know something about the dogma. And that leads me to go look it up and read about it and understand it better so that I can explain it to the person I'm talking to in a more clear way. And so w- what you'll find is that when you engage in ecumenism, you'll also be learning about your own tradition at a much deeper level. You'll be better able to defend it, better able to understand it. And uh, you'll have a greater appreciation for the truth of it than if you
0: never encountered opposing viewpoints at all. So I think we can start talking about bad ecumenism and what should not be engaged in and what we try to avoid and justifiably other people radically oppose and is why ecumenism or universalism or any variation thereof is spooky to some people and has a really negative reaction. For some context here to the orthodox anathema against ecumenism, for... Most of the last 500 years, the heart of Orthodox Christianity has been occupied and oppressed by extremely hostile powers. First, it was the Ottoman Empire, which controlled all of Anatolia, Greece, Middle East, and good chunks of Southern and Eastern Europe. And then immediately after the Ottoman Empire fell came the Soviet Union, which occupied much of the same territory. Plus half of Orthodox Christianity, which is located in Russia. And these powers, being extremely hostile, prevented Orthodoxy from really interacting with the rest of the world very much. When the Soviet Union collapsed, began its collapse, after Southern and Eastern Europe started liberating itself, either from Soviet control or Ottoman control, both Protestant and Catholic churches started sending a whole bunch of missionaries into these places to try to convert the populace. And what they would find is towns that had been Christians since St. Paul had walked through either consciously or unconsciously accidentally or otherwise this attitude that the people in the area weren't Christians at all, or that they were completely heretical or that, you know, they needed to be converted immediately to these other churches That may sound just comical to some people, but that would be deeply offensive to a culture that has just spent the last five centuries, you know, struggling to survive and under intense oppression. Throughout the 80s and 90s, the Orthodox Church really grew quite hostile to the concept of ecumenism, but as we explained before, not the good ecumenism as Vatican II, you know, laid out in the 1960s, but you know, what a lot of people seem to think ecumenism ought to be, what is anathematized here is concepts that, you know, there isn't actually one church, that it's a metaphorical thing, or that there's a bunch of branches that are going to grow and unite into each other, or that all religions are equal, or that, you know, the sacraments aren't a big deal, and, you know, they're not important at all. And these are all justifiably bad, and we can explain really why they're bad.
1: One of the first reasons, uh, and perhaps the most prevalent reason, uh, why ecumenism ecumenism can go off the rails is with the differences don't matter approach. Uh, So this this approach tends to take the form of people looking at the differences between uh, different churches and simply hand-waving them away. They'll do this through various means. Sometimes they will literally just say that differences don't matter because all Christian churches are just different parts of the same whole, or they will find particular reasons why specific doctrines
0: are actually not in conflict with each other. And so there's two different flavors of that. We're going to talk about them separately because they take very different forms and wrong for different reasons. Uh, the... One that's easier to name and describe, non-denominationalism. We'll talk about that second and describe the more difficult one first. And really what this amounts to is relativism, which is an explicitly anti-Christian way of thinking. Christians believe in a God, believe in a God who set up rules, who set up a lot of rules about reality, and who is trying to guide us to... You know some ultimate truth of salvation and god and to say that you know none of that matters is explicitly anti-christian and you can end up with some really weird flavors of people who call themselves christian uh underneath this umbrella who will you know openly affirm sin that they will advertise themselves as churches that say come as you are and stay that way when it should be, come as you are, but don't expect not to change. Really, it's just, it's dishonest, is what it is.
1: Right, it, it draws people in with a, with a false notion that they can have their cake and eat it too. Right, you know, come as you are, and, but don't worry about our doctrines or dogmas about sin or about practice. It, it doesn't really matter, right? You know, as Catholics, right, I, we can say that we believe that Christ founded a church. Right. And that, that church is an institutional reality that all Christians should owe uh, obedience to. Other Christians will disagree with us about that, but we, we can't just ignore that aspect of our tradition and act as if it's totally fine for uh, for people to just believe what they want. And everybody's going to the same place anyway. Right. We, we want to understand and impress upon each other uh, when we're engaging in ecumenism, that the differences do matter and that even if we're not hateful towards people because of their beliefs, uh, we don't want to get to the point where we're looking at beliefs that are radically contrary to what our tradition teaches and seeing them as benign. That, that is just utterly
0: uh, opposed to what we should be doing as Christians. Any unity that it offers is temporary at best. Think, think of any relationship you've ever had that like, there was some serious disagreement that you just ignored and pretended it didn't matter. But if it's a serious disagreement, eventually it's going to matter. And your, your temporary solutions are not going to prove true in the end that the difference didn't matter because the relationship will be harmed. So uh, now
1: we'll deal with a second uh, flavor of this kind of, theological relativism, which uh, we're going to term non-denominationalism. And uh, that's not meant as an attack on people who happen to be part of a non-denominational church. Uh, But we would say that those churches are uh, an example of the error that
0: we're we're trying to combat here. We can define that church real quick, because that is a matter of a lot of confusion for people. So there's this idea of non-denominationalism, which is that I don't want to be part of a denomination, I'm not a member of one, I'm not really sure if any one of them is true, I'm just going to try to be Christian the best I can. That is not the same thing, though it's related to the church that calls itself non-denominational. You will find these churches, they either might might say on their sign out front that they are non-denominational, or you would go there and after a month, you would still have no idea strictly of what they actually believe. That would be a non-denominational church, which, despite its name, is a denomination, because the defining feature of non-denominational churches is that they explicitly reject the concept of creeds and confessions, which is why it's so hard to identify what people in these churches believe. And that's kind of the flaw with the movement itself, that Either the general idea of non denominationalism or the non denominational church share in common. A
1: distinction that we draw on our own platform between these two types of non denominationalism is the idea of a, a discerning Christian. So there are many individuals, and maybe you listening to the, this podcast might be one of them, who know that they believe in Christ and they accept the basic tenets of the gospel but they just haven't investigated the differences between denominations all that much, and they don't really know where they fall. And so they're kind of searching and learning and trying to find where they fit. Uh, On our platform, we would call that person a discerning Christian. Uh, They might call themselves a non-denominational, but we don't think that's really an accurate term for them because they're not rejecting the concept of denominations. They just don't know which one they fall into.
0: Those people who aren't sure where they would fall because they haven't really done the research or, you know, maybe they're just not minded to do that kind of research. That, that's not a thing that interests them or intrigues them. The, the flaw with the, the movement and with the non-denominational churches is that they don't enable people to ever do so. Like I said, you could go to a non-denominational church for a month and walk away with very little idea of what specifically anybody believes in there. The reason being is that there is not really a universal belief in there. You could ask 15 different people in that church what they think about the same Bible verse and very likely walk away with 15 different answers. This isn't fulfilling in the way that, you know, Christianity ought to be in a universal Christianity, a Christianity with all of its different aspects, traditions, practices together, should have room for intellectual exploration of high theology and patristics and scriptural study. And non-denominationalism, the movement or the church, doesn't offer any room for that because there is no objective truth to it.
1: Uh, it's, it's sort of a, a paradoxical problem, right? Because by being non-denominational, uh, as, as their creed being that they don't believe in denominations really means that they don't believe in doctrine. And when you remove doctrine from the equation, you actually end up with less room for exploration because doctrine in the traditional churches serves as a guardrail to keep Christians within the bounds of acceptable theological exploration. And when you remove those guardrails, you end up with really wild things. And this is how we get Christians uh, or self-professed Christians who advocate for all kinds of immorality or uh, sinful behavior or or really, uh, really bizarre practices sometimes. And it's because they've removed the guardrails. So it's It's kind of a paradox in that there's actually less room for genuine exploration because
0: they don't have a context within which to understand that exploration. This provides a really good contrast between our platform, which is explicitly denominational. And that's not to say that, you know, we're officially Catholic or officially Orthodox. We encourage and really require everybody to very clearly identify, you know, what tradition they're part of. And because our platform does that, we have enabled people to share ideas in ways that a strictly non-denominational space on the internet could not. We've been to those spaces, and you know the reason we didn't like them is because ultimately they either devolve into really ugly arguments that never get to true concepts because nobody understands each other, or you end up with a lowest common denomination Christianity where nobody can really say anything better than I love Jesus, which, hey, great thing to say, great belief, but if everybody already agrees, it's not really a conversation. Right, and,
1: and so what we find is that when we, when we set up a space for people to engage with the traditions themselves, uh, we can avoid the, the uh, mudslinging, Uh, which we're going to talk about here in a second, while also keeping the traditions in focus so that, that we can actually talk about something of substance rather than just focusing on banal commonalities that all Christians from a very young age have already understood and accepted.
0: And so that brings us to the last point of polemics. So a polemic for people that don't recognize the word is a type of comment really designed to attack or divide people and division is an inherently anti-christian thing. Uh, it, It is said many times throughout the Bible, throughout tradition that, you know, Satan cannot create, he can only divide and destroy. And that's what polemics do. They can't unite people. They only divide people. And an example of this would be going into an Orthodox space and saying something like submit to Rome or going into a Catholic space and, you know, accusing them of, I don't know, any manner of the hundred of different things Catholics are constantly accused of. People don't respond well to that kind of thing, and you're not going to get anywhere by doing it.
1: Right. Uh, one of my favorite examples of a good ecumenist uh, would be the Catholic Answers speaker, Trent Horn. And he has a saying that I, that I love to repeat to people that your conversations should be generating more light than heat when you're talking about the differences between uh, faith perspectives you're not trying to create a bunch of heat and friction and disagreement and bad feeling you're, you're trying to get, generate understanding and and find common ground if you can and if you can't you should be able to see why you can't find common ground in a polite and good faith way and When we engage in polemics we're generating more heat than light and that really doesn't benefit anyone because frankly we have enough heat from the rest of the culture
0: so that basically sums up how we would describe good ecumenism and bad ecumenism really what this serves as is an instruction and a caution and that we hope to instruct people and guide people into a positive form of ecumenism which we practice uh which is kind of the mission of our platform is that we want to bring christians together and educate them help them take their faith more seriously regardless of what tradition they're in and what we don't want to do and what we think no christian should want to do is divide others or unite them under false pretenses if you're interested in getting involved in ecumenism yourself We'd like
1: to extend a warm invitation to anybody that isn't already part of our Discord community to join the Discord server. The link to that will be in the description to this video. We try our best to, to model good ecumenism on our server as well as to branch out into other platforms and spaces where people can engage in that kind of thing. Communicate and make friends with other Christians. Please join us. We hope you enjoy it. And make sure to check out our website at hawksigno.org.